why you need to bring broccoli and blueberries to a life of cotton candy and potato chips with your millionaire teacher, Andrew Hallam. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. It was such a pleasure to speak with Andrew. His book and advice has made a large impact on me personally and my money story. I have read his book, The Millionaire Teacher, over 10 times, and each time I find something new and valuable. It is such a great book. If you have not read it, I highly recommend pausing this, hopping on Amazon or wherever else, and buying a copy of Andrew's book. It is great. During this episode, Andrew shares wonderful stories from his life, his life's journey as he navigates his own relationship with money. He speaks about the value of financial mentors, why knowing too much about investing can actually be harmful, why he biked 110 kilometers a day to work, how he traveled the world teaching people about money, the importance of mini retirements, and so much more. Andrew also shares some wonderful insights on how we can change our spending habits in a way that will bring more life satisfaction to our lives, and why depreciating assets can be like a ball and chain in our lives. Andrew even discusses how his own mortality serves as a great teacher on finding financial balance. Andrew also talks about his new book coming out in January 2022. The title is still up in the air. I think it might be called Balance, but we'll see. Head over to Andrew's website. Links are in the show notes. Pick up a copy of The Millionaire Teacher, subscribe to his mailing list, and you can get a copy of his first chapter in his new book set to come out January 22nd. Big thanks to Andrew for coming on the show, and thank you to you, the listeners, for listening. If you've been enjoying these shows, please head over to Apple and leave a review. I would greatly appreciate it. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word. Today, I am pleased to have Andrew Hallam on the podcast. Andrew's book, The Millionaire Teacher, was and has been a significant resource in my life. I've gifted this book to many people. I've read it. I've highlighted it over and over. And I'm excited to have Andrew on the podcast. But who is Andrew? For those of you who don't know, he's an international best-selling author of The Millionaire Teacher, The Nine Rules of Wealth You Should Have Learned in School, and Expat Millionaire, How to Build Wealth Living Overseas. Profiled on media such as CNBC and the Wall Street Journal, he's also the first person to have the number one selling finance book on Amazon USA, Amazon Canada, Amazon UAE. He's written columns for the Globe and Mail, Canadian Business, Money Sense, Internax, and Asset Builder. Since 2016, he has spoken at business and international schools in over 30 different countries. And as we'll talk towards the end, he has a new book coming out in January. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for the invite, John. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited to have you on here. As I said, I have read your book numerous of times. I've gifted it. So uh, it's great to actually speak to you. Before we dive into the book, though, Andrew, on this show, we talk a lot about stories and 
whether that's our life stories, our money stories. But we, we often talk about how the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves on a daily basis is basically the narrative that we create for ourselves. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about your story and maybe take us back to the earlier years of your life before, which we'll get into, you created this investment portfolio in your mid-30s of above a million dollars. Take us back before those times. And maybe can you just recall what was your relationship with money in your early years, your teen years or at home as a family, and maybe touch on any significant moments that you feel have impacted you in your journey so far? I was pretty lucky with respect to money because we didn't have any as a family. And that might sound really strange. Like a lot of people would think, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like you were lucky because your family didn't have a lot of money. If your family has a lot of money and you, and they give you things like you want a bicycle when you're 15 and they buy you a bike, you want a car. So your family parents buy you a car or help you with a car. When they do that, they actually deprive you of an ability to work out. Literally, they deprive you of ability to work out your own muscles, to build your own financial muscles. So my family was in a socioeconomic sweet spot because we weren't poor. Like we had enough money to put food on the table. Like my dad was a mechanic and there were four kids and my mom worked part-time earning minimum wage at a retail job. But they had enough, like they had enough to shelter us. They had enough to feed us. And if we wanted anything, we had to save money for it. Like we, I had to buy my own shoes from when I was, and a lot of people listening right now would be like, yeah, that was me too. You know, it's not that extraordinary. I was 14 years old and I wanted to buy some shoes. My parents weren't going to buy those shoes for me. I had to be able to buy them. So that was a major blessing. And it's something that so many people who are listening to this can relate to, to think that, you know, oh, you need some kind of advantage. You need parents who can help you out with things like a down payment on a house or help you with a car. And that is not true at all. In fact, these things can just, in the long run, short run, it can look like it helps you out. But in the long run, it can absolutely weaken you. It's like taking you out of the gym, stopping you from working out, stopping you from developing your own goal-setting financial muscles. So for me, never really had any money. And then I met a guy, and I mentioned this in my book, he was a mechanic. I was going to university and I had a summer job. And there was a fellow there who everyone told me was a, a self-made millionaire and he was a mechanic. And I thought, well, there's no way, there's just no way this guy can be a mechanic. And they said, if he ever wants to talk to you about money, make sure you sit down and you listen to him. And they were hard. Like those other guys were like really adamant. No, listen to this dude if he wants to talk to you. And so one day that guy did ask me a few questions and then started talking to me and told me about and showed me how compound interest worked. He said, look, you got to figure out for you uh, a job that you enjoy doing because you're going to work for a while, right? And you're going to trade pieces of your life to your employer. You're going to basically trade time for money. And so that's your life that you're trading. So you make sure that you at least like the job that you're doing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a job that pays you a ton of money if you become financially literate and learn to live below your means and to invest the difference. So that's what I did. He really got me, convinced me that I should start investing right away. So I started with small sums of money when I was about 19. I started with $100 a month and just continued from there. And gradually the snowball just grew and grew and grew as he said it would. Yeah, I remember that story in your book. And it really spoke to me that when you frame it with the mechanic, yeah, naturally our brains are like, eh, this something doesn't add up here. But 
it really speaks to a lot of the message that you're giving is that investing over a long term, I think I've heard from you in different podcasts, you've been investing for 30 years or over 30 years already. And then at what point did you decide, I got to write this book? And then we're going to go into the book. So maybe speak about the experiences. I like your stories about some of your experiences, even riding the bike. And I remember that the one of the girl at the gas station be like, are you okay? Yeah, that's a funny story. Maybe just talk a bit about like what was going on for you to be like, hey, I got to write this book now. You know, it's funny because I was pretty careful with my money. And so I've met people who have said to me, oh man, you mustn't have had any fun when you were young because you were so frugal. And that wasn't true at all. It was such a challenge and it was a fun challenge. And I I really enjoyed it. And one of the examples, I mean, you sort of alluded to there was I paid really low rent at a particular spot that was a long ways from where I worked. And, And I chose that particular location because it was super cheap rent. And so I'm like, well, I could drive to work, but then I'm going to use so much fuel for my car. So why don't I ride my bike to work? And so I ended up riding my bike and it was a long trip. But at the time, you know, to put this all into perspective too, at the time I was into bike racing. And so I would be doing that kind of mileage almost anyway. It was a little bit further than I would normally do, but it was a 110 kilometer round trip. I'd had this mountain bike with slicks on and I had a trailer that I was towing and I had clothes in the back and I had my like grading from, you know, student essays and I'd basically be taking this up and down the highway. It was lit like a Christmas tree. Like I had all these lights in the back so that, you know, it was as safe as possible. I think I had, you know, those flashing lights. Yeah. I think I had eight of them on the back. It's like, do not hit me. <laughs> do not miss me. And I'd keep them going like, you know, in the day as well, just so that it was really bright. But the funny story was, um, that you alluded to. And I was, I was happy doing this because it was like my training and I was saving money, but I stopped at this gas station. Um, I was kind of hungry and I, I didn't bring enough food on one particular day. So I stopped there to buy something like a power bar or whatever it was. And there was a woman there and she was a teacher at my school and she just felt so sorry for me. And she said, Andrew, you know, we need to, at the school, we need to put some kind of fun together to get you a car. And she had a, a nice little Mazda Miata, like a new, you know, Mazda MX-5. And I, and I remember being kind of embarrassed because I looked across at her car and I realized, wow, this is kind of embarrassing because what she doesn't realize is that I could buy three of her cars cash. Yeah. And I actually specifically, I think I picked that one out because it really, it spoke to me on how you were able to understand what Andrew really wanted and like act as somehow have a filter on external pressures, which ones you take or which ones you wouldn't. And it really makes me think of a a chapter in your book that I'm actually going to go right to is conquering the enemy in the mirror. And I think that's rule number five. Let's just call it that. I don't know. Let's call it that. I got the book right there, but it looks too good on the shelf in the camera. Let's sound really smart. Let's both call that number five. Number five, but it conquered the enemy in the mirror. And over the years, I've always gone back to that chapter. And recently there's this quote that's really stood out with me. And when I heard it, I'm like, ah, that reminds me of Andrew's chapter, but it's from Epictetus. And it says something like this. Don't let the force of impression carry you away. Say to it, hold up a bit and let me see who you are and where you came from. And the reason why it really relates to that chapter uh, that you wrote for me is because I felt like you had such clarity on what you wanted. And really in personal finance, we get influenced on so many different factors. Our emotions get heightened and we respond so often. If you could recall back at that time or even over the next 30 years of your lives, 
I guess, what have you been able to see that helps you understand what Andrew wants and not what the mass media wants, not what like the newsletters are telling us we should do? Maybe you could share what you've done in, in hopes that uh, yeah, other people can relate or offer some advice because uh, that chapter is full of fantastic advice. I guess mostly, you know, when you're looking at the, the newsletters or you're looking at somebody touting a, a hot software program to trade stocks, they're trying to make money from you, not for you. So they make their money by you buying their subscriptions, by you buying into whatever it is that they happen, happen to be selling. And the important thing is that if you think about how your investments are going to perform this week or, or next month, or you try to think about that, that's what they try and do. They try and tempt you with an immediacy. Here's what's hot. Here's what you're going to do. If you follow the immediacy lures, and the world is full of them more now than ever, if you follow the immediacy lures long-term, statistically, you'll end up with far less money. So think of it as a marathon. Do you know that when you're running a 26-mile marathon, and let's say you're awesome, you're world-class, and you want to break a world record for a marathon, or you just want to make the Olympic team, let's say. Well, studies have shown that the best way to do that is to run what they call even splits. So every mile is more or less the same pace, right? So you set yourself that pace and you recognize, okay, I need to set myself the discipline to run even splits, no matter how hard it might be otherwise. So now some fool goes past you 200 meters into the race and he sprints by like Usain Bolt, like he just bolts past you. And now your temptation is to follow that guy. Your temptation is you want to make the Olympic team and this dude is just past you. Not only is he past you, it looks like he's destroying you. So what the temptation to do for any runner and anyone who's done a competitive event will know exactly this. The temptation is to pick up your own pace. But if you do that, you will end up slower. And that's the whole point here is that when we look at investing, you have to look at how, literally, how can I end up maximizing my money over my lifetime? And one of the keys to that is not following the crap. Because it's not following the stories. It's not following the cryptocurrency that just tripled in value. It's not following the hot tech stock that just quadrupled in value. Because so many of these things that will lure you in will burn you in the end. That's exactly like trying to chase down that guy at the beginning of that marathon who sprints past. So we have reams of evidence with respect to this to show that, hey, this is reality when it comes to investing. The reality is to think, do you really want to be greedy? If you truly want to be greedy and you want to maximize your money, then you've got to follow that long-term strategy and not get lured into the people who are sprinting past you going, wow, look how fast I'm running right now. Because inevitably, most of those people, almost all of those people, inevitably are going to crash and burn. And it might take a couple of years. It might take like in the marathon. It might be, it might be the four-mile marker. It might even be the six-mile marker before they completely implode, but they will implode. And so when you look at the enemy in the mirror, the enemy is us. As investors, we're really primal. We're a primal group of people who want something right now. And we get, we get drawn into stories and promises instead of saying, what does the economic science say in terms of the probabilities of long-term wealth? So that's the thing that I suggest people try to follow, try to harness that inner emotional urge that wants something right now. The marathon example, what a good analogy. And maybe it's hitting home because of the first marathon I ran, I thought I could run oh, a minute faster pace. That didn't last very long. But what about cryptocurrency? 
not specifically, but what about this narrative? It's different this time. Mm. Andrew, come on. This is that evidence wasn't around back then. And I hear this all the time. And I guess where my question wants to go, based on your your experiences, when do you think as an investor we should be curious and lean in to learn or just be like, okay, my filter? That's the chaos talking again. So the this time it's different narrative is something that's been brought up in every generation. So when Sir Isaac Newton got drawn into the South Sea bubble, everybody said, well, no, Isaac, this time is different. It's never turned out to be different. It's always turned out that when people end up making really, really fast, quick profits on something, and there's no general substance behind it, the truth always ends up revealing itself, whereby it's not different. So when it comes to learning about investing, here's what I do know. I do know this. The less you think about your investing, the better you're going to do. So we have all kinds of studies that show that actually Fidelity did an interesting one to see, well, which were its best investors? Were they people that followed the markets, followed economic news, were always trying to learn? They had master's degrees in economics or business or finance. Now, Fidelity found that their best investors were the people who had actually forgotten they had accounts with Fidelity or they were dead. So the more we tinker with our investing, and investing is one of those weird things where in almost every other realm, the more you learn about something, the better you will do. With investing, there's a certain amount you need to know. But beyond that, anything you learn beyond that is only harmful to you long-term. So investing is much like a bar of soap. The more you mess with that bar of soap, the smaller it will get. That's such a good statement. So if I'm a listener and I've devoted the last two years to learning about index investing, I'm, I'm learning on smart betas and sort of value or, and I'm like starting to feel confident in this. And I just listened to that statement. Maybe I'm defensive. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't know what I know. What is that? You said you need to know a certain amount. And after that is harmful. Based on your opinion, what, what, what is that amount that the average person can suffice and keep their bar of soap in relatively position, like a good bar of soap. It's really quite simple, just a, a diversified portfolio of ETFs. And whatever you choose, stay the course. So some people will say, oh, I want to have some value stock ETFs in this as well. Or I want to have a little bit of growth stock ETFs in this as well. Whatever you choose, stick to it. Ideally, we look at the simplest would be global market capitalization portfolio. So Essentially, you just have exposure to the world in its simplest form. So you have exposure to all of the world's different markets within your portfolio. And so if you're Canadian, you have a bond ETF, you have a global stock ETF, and maybe you have a Canadian stock ETF. Okay, you're done. You're just done. That's it. If you can do that, you don't need to learn anything else. There are better things to learn. There are things to learn that will actually help your life. You learn more about finance, they're not going to help your life. Statistically, it's not going to help your life. That message resonates so much with me. And I like how you say it could be harmful because I agree. And I, you know, I almost think even the people, like sometimes we think that we know this, like, oh, I should add this piece of value or whatever it is into my portfolio. But potentially like that saying, it might be more harmful. Knowing a little bit, I feel like to your point, it can be more harmful. So then let's go to, I think rule number two, let's say in rule number two, it's spend like a millionaire. Let's look at things that we can do like you advocate to spend like a millionaire. <laughs> Again, your message resonates with me is because it doesn't have to be simple. I love the fidelity uh, example. People who forgot they had their accounts do better. So we're talking about this idea of like 
know, you, you just built a little portfolio for us. That's all you need to know. Don't know too much. But then you have this rule called spend like a millionaire. Can our audience now, if they haven't read the book, which they should, and now they will because they should go buy it. They might be like, what do you mean, Andrew? Spend like a millionaire? What do you mean by this? What most people do is they spend a lot of money on material things that decrease in value. So they buy depreciating assets. They spend more than they should on depreciating assets. Most millionaires don't do that. Most millionaires will spend more money on appreciating assets. So things like real estate, things like uh, businesses, things like uh, stock and bond market portfolios, those are all appreciating assets over time. Millionaires spend a lot less than you might think on depreciating assets such as cars. So I'm going to give you an example here. I'm in a condominium complex right now in Victoria, BC. And if I go downstairs and I look at the vehicles, my vehicle is, my vehicle, first of all, has no rust on it. It's a, it's a Volkswagen Golf and it's a little five-speed, it's got you know, heated seats and power windows and power sunroof. And it's a pretty cool little car, but it's, it's quite utilitarian. Probably, it might be the cheapest car in that, in that whole garage. And that's the irony here is that most millionaires don't spend as much as you might think on cars. So I'll give you an example. In the United States, Thomas Stanley's daughter, he was the guy who wrote Millionaire Next Door. His daughter recently updated their research and, and published The Next Millionaire Next Door in 2019. And she found that the average millionaire in the United States paid, on average, $35,000 for their latest car. Now, in this garage right here, if I go downstairs, I can point out half of those cars down there are worth more than, than, than $35,000 least half of them, Sean. How many of those people are millionaires? Seriously? I mean, a lot of them are young people in their 20s and 30s. They've got big debts. Some of them got student loan debts. I, mean, I know they've got massive mortgages and they're paying payments or making payments on something that's a, a depreciating entity. So what is so interesting is this, a car will not enhance your life satisfaction. We know that based on something called the hedonic adaptation. So when we talk about psychology and money, we know based on studies, based on research, that we get used to what we own really, really fast. So if you had a brand new BMW and I gave that to you, at first you'd feel amazing in that car. Like Sean, you'd drive it around. You'd be like, wow, I can feel the acceleration. It's super tight. It handles so well. You'd get out and you'd look at it and go, gosh, that's a beautiful car. And it would be a beautiful car. But here's what happens. Soon, you're not thinking about the car while you're driving it. Soon you're thinking about oh, am I late for this appointment? Or look at that jerk, he just cut me off. Or, oh, there's somebody walking down the street with like pink hair. You're not thinking about how the car actually feels. So your attention is taken away from that. So it's only in the very, very beginning that our attention is focused on the vehicle. And then it just becomes that thing that gets you from point A to point B. And if somebody asks you, hey, do you like that car? Do you like your vehicle? You go, yeah, yeah, I really like my vehicle. I'm so glad I bought it. But when we actually measure how satisfied you are driving it, Research suggests you're no more satisfied driving that brand new BMW than, would, than you would be driving a 10-year-old Honda Civic. So knowing, too, that it's a depreciating asset, meaning your car value drops in time every year, a lot of people will say, millionaires, for example, many of them will say, why bother spending a ton of money on something like that? Why not buy or spend money on things that are actually going to appreciate over time? Because a depreciating asset is kind of like a ball and chain. It just keeps you working. That's what it does. It keeps you working longer. And there's nothing wrong with working. Like, I love it. If you love what you do, it's awesome to keep working. But it's so great to have choice. 
to say, I'm going to take a year off or I'm going to quit my job that I hate that pays me a lot of money. And I'm going to take this other job that looks super cool. And okay, it doesn't pay as much, but I would enjoy doing that job. And so in a sense, spending a lot of money on stuff doesn't enhance your value and actually ends up like a bit of a ball and chain. Yeah. That ball and chain is a, such a, a good analogy, especially when you look at the Canadian debt ratios right now, US as well. Oh, discretionary income, much more than a dollar, dollar 74 cents or something like that. Where do you think people can start? We look at that stat. Like I think it's at $1.72 we owe for every dollar discretionary income. Where do you think people could start to change this story or narrative that they have in their minds that like, hey, I go downstairs and look at all these beautiful cars. I need that. Because intuitively, a lot of this, you know, from a math perspective, it makes sense. But we see that the actions aren't aligning. I guess someone's listening. Would you have any advice on where someone could start to like peek at why they're acting out that way or why are they behaving that way? One of the things my wife tells me that she started to do, and we talked about this, and she would see somebody going down the street in a really, really nice car. And she used to think, wow, they've got a lot of money or they're really, they've got a really nice car. Now she just wonders... Hmm, I wonder what the payments are. Hmm, I wonder how long they're going to be working to pay for that. And I wonder when they're going to be buying their next one and taking on another debt. Hmm, and I wonder if they could take two years off and travel the world. Probably not. So I think it's just recognizing that what you see around you is not necessarily very healthy. And there are some pretty good groups. Like one of the risks is that we've normalized this. So your neighbors do this. My neighbors do this. So many people do this. And when your friend network and your work cohort does this, it normalizes it. You know, the person that you work with just bought a brand new pickup truck for $55,000. That normalizes it for you and for all of the other people around you. And so when it becomes normalized, you start to think that it's not unhealthy, but it's super unhealthy. It's really, really unhealthy. So I think one of the best things to do is to try to surround yourself with people or at least engage with people who see it as unhealthy and they see how important it is to put more money towards appreciating assets versus depreciating assets. People who will spend more on relationships and time with people they love and experiences, spending money on experiences versus things. So it's trying to surround yourselves with those people so that that becomes your normal. That becomes what's normalized versus what we see outside. And it's not that I'm saying, you know, you should ditch your other friends but somehow try to make connections with people who think a little bit differently. And if you can't, you know, you can find some interesting things online, like FI communities, for example, a Facebook group on financial and independence communities. So, you know, if you're in Edmonton, you could probably go like Facebook, Edmonton, uh, financial independence community, you could probably find one and you'll find people talking about, you know, how to save costs on this and that. You could look at someone like uh, Mr. Money Mustache, who basically writes about this whole philosophy and you can start reading about what he talks about and then see some of the people that, en- that are engaging with him and engaging with the FI community. And it can just bring a little bit of broccoli and blueberries to a life of cotton candy and potato chips. That's what I call it. I've never actually called it that. I just called it. I just made that up now. Claiming I call it that. But I just made it up. You know, we're recording that. So that's excellent that it's recorded because I was just about to say, your stories and analogies are just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I just made that up. But I believe it. it's so true. It is. Yeah, it, it's so true. When I read your book and you, you bring up the financial independence community, which for most people, they're, they're aware of it now, but it's people who want to live financially independent. Uh, a lot of cases as soon as possible. 
It seems to me you were doing so many of these things before the FI community came really, you know, since I think 2009, it started really building up from the, the initial bloggers. We talked a bit about the mechanic rest, but did you have inspiration or other resources you leaned on back then when maybe it wasn't so prevalent to hear about uh, these bloggers and other podcasts? No, you know, and it's funny because there were generations before me too. And that's the thing. We just haven't really heard of them. I met a woman in Ajijic, Mexico, a couple of years ago. She and her partner retired when they were about 40. They didn't earn a ton of money and they had a couple of kids, but they were really, really careful with their money from the very beginning and they were investing and maybe they were the very early 40s. But anyway, they didn't have people necessarily to follow, but most of us find someone. We find some kind of mentor. So I had Russ, the mechanic, who gave me this idea and then I just started reading about how I could most effectively invest my money. So having that person and meeting that person, it's like an inoculation, you know, it it takes, or it doesn't, you know, in some cases you can talk to somebody about this until you're blue in the face and they have to be ready for it. Yeah. You know, when you say like, or it doesn't, like when you meet these people, it really reminds me of the importance of staying curious about learning new information. Cause if you weren't curious back when you met Russ, you could be like, yeah, mechanic millionaire, not possible. And I think that, yeah, that idea of being open to learning. Something that I think is so fascinating, and uh, my wife and I, we actually spent a year and a half traveling around the world before we started working full-time. You've been able to travel and speak in, I think, 30 or more countries. I think that was after you would have been financially independent. So my, my question here is, what significance Outside of the obvious, my question is around what significance did being financially independent but still being able to work and do meaningful things mean to you? And of course, we got the obvious answer, like I didn't have to work anymore. But reflecting now on the ability to travel and all the other things that you did after you were financially independent, what significance or what realizations did you learn that maybe you weren't expecting? Well, I think we'll back it up a little bit because one of the things that I know for sure, and there's so many things and so many levels of uncertainty in, in life but I know for sure that I'm going to die. And I've always known that. And that's the best gift. Like I know, okay, it seems so obvious, Andrew. Of course, everyone knows they're going to die. But so few people live like they know they're going to die. They'll know it on an intellectual level, but they won't know it on a behavioral level. And so for me, when it comes to travel, for example, I wasn't going to travel when I became financially independent. I wanted to insert elements of travel into my life throughout my life. And so I always did that. I would have these pieces, these parts in time where I would take these. Sometimes it would be a year or it would be five months where I would travel. And so I don't know if I'm going to live until I'm 70. So the whole idea of not really living today with a focus on living at some point in the future when you can suddenly, you know, be financially independent is kind of crazy in my book because, you know, you could kick it at 35 or 40. So I had little mini retirements along the way. I guess I could call them that. I didn't think about them as, at the time, but I had these little mini retirements. And even now, it's so important for us to continue to be active and to continue to think. The worst thing you could do is if you inherited $10 million, you wouldn't need to work anymore. The worst thing to do is not work. And I'm not saying you need to necessarily do the same job you're doing now, but to make sure that you keep your mind working that you're connected with a community because that's huge, then you're connecting with people. So when you're intellectually connecting with people, your health is better. Research suggests you also live longer. You also end up 
less paranoid in life as well. So one of the things too about your brain is your brain is like a muscle. Your brain needs to be activated. So you might not be working, but you might decide you're going to write a bunch of novels. That's still kind of work because you have to figure out, well, how am I going to do this? I'm going to learn this and I'm going to market them and I'm going to get an agent and it's work. It keeps the brain going. You have to do that for longevity. You have to do that for a sense of purpose. So that's one thing that I'd like to think about when, like if I were to sit down with a bunch of really hardcore FI community people to say, just so you guys know, I just want to get a sense that you understand the balance here and the importance of continuing to work. And that work might be volunteer. It really might be something you're just super passionate about and no one's going to pay you. So coming back to my example, my wife and I decided we would take one year off work in 2014. I loved my job, Sean. Like, it was awesome. I was teaching high school English and high school personal finance. It was an amazing job. Loved it. Loved it. Um, We were living in Singapore. So I taught at Singapore American School. It was amazing because we got 13 weeks off every year. And so we were also surrounded by just the coolest places like Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, like traipsing into these countries was just magic. And we had lots of time off, but we decided, well, we'll take a year off. And one year led to two, which led to three, which led to six, because I started getting all these requests to give these personal finance talks around the world. And so we never really got back into the classroom. And that was fine because I was still working. So in the sense of working, it was like, well, let's update Millionaire Teacher. Let's update the, the Millionaire Expat book that I bought. Oh, let's arrange to, here's some, uh, these people want to do financial sessions on Zoom or they were at the time before COVID, they were flying me to places. And my wife and I were like, this is awesome. You know, we were getting paid to fly to Egypt, give a bunch of talks in Egypt. And then we'd spend like a week and a half there just checking out the pyramids and soaking up what we wanted to soak up. So that was really cool. It was kind of like a a work slash lifestyle. But what we love about it is that we continue, like I continue to work. I continue to do stuff. Um, This morning I published uh, an article in the Globe and Mail. You've got to keep like thinking, got to keep doing things. And I think that takes the pressure off people too, Sean, who say, I need X amount of money to retire. That takes pressure off people. I say, screw that. As long as you can think, you can actually continue to earn some kind of residual income. And that's the best thing for you. That's not a ball and chain. That's the best thing for you. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, that's something that when I look at FI community, I think they're, they're doing great things, challenging the existing narrative. But I often, uh, it's funny when you say a statement, you put a but, it kind of disregards everything beforehand. But uh, my comment is that I often hear like, what's my FI number? How much do I need? How much do I need? And it's just sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice all along the way. To your point, we don't know when we're going to, you know, die. So I really like this idea of like being engaged. And if you look at like the research of goal attainment, it talks a lot about, you know, we always hear the journey is more important than the actual destination. And I think that that FI journey for some can be very unsatisfying once they get to that number. To your point, if they're like, I'm just going to stop working. I've seen a couple of articles to that, actually. A couple of people that they, they earned a lot of money. So obviously for them, it was easy because they were in the tech industry and they were uber frugal and they're 38 years old and they're writing some piece. And I've, you know, I've read a few of them online where it's like, they're freaking miserable. The dark side of that dream. Because we need, we need purpose, right? And so FI just gives you a choice. So I love the whole FI community, but there are ways to think about it and there are ways not to think about it. And they have to have that balanced perspective and recognize that that FI number, you know what? Odds are you probably need less than you think because you're always, let's hope, always going to be doing something 
You're not going to just sit on your ass and watch TV, right? You know, speaking of journeys, maybe talk to us about the journey of writing Millionaire Teacher. What was it like to go through that whole process? Of, I'm sure in all this information in your head, putting it on a, in a book, which I have to comment on. You've done a super good job of taking like behavioral finance concepts or cognitive biases, but putting them into layman's terms and with good examples. So not only I feel like you had all this information, but you put it down where it could resonate with a lot of people. But maybe talk us through the journey of writing that book and what was it like to publish the book, like finally to be done. And what did you learn from the process? Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. It's such a good question. At the time, I was teaching high school English at Singapore American School. That's a place, obviously, in Singapore. We had um, international students. It was based on an American curriculum, but there was no pension system. So unlike public school teachers in Canada, who essentially stay out of debt, pay off your house, put in your time, pension for life, everything's good, bothers your uncle. Once you move to, if you move to a private school, it's not the same gig. So when they're working and living in Singapore, for example, they're not contributing to CFP. So they're not going to get the full rewards of that when they retire. They're not contributing to a pension system. So they're not going to get the rewards of that. There's nobody encouraging you to invest in RRSP because you can't invest in RRSP when you're overseas. You can invest in other things. But this was it for me, Sean, was realizing, okay, so I'm surrounded by these people who are living really well. We were getting paid pretty well and they're traveling a lot. They're having an awesome life. But number one, they weren't necessarily very few of them were saving as much as they should. And two, perhaps more damaging is that there were financial service companies that were targeting them in particular and getting them invested in products that were really, really high cost and that weren't necessarily suitable for them. So I started buying people books. I became like this Robin Hood. And I hadn't written a book. At this point, I was writing articles for Money Sense magazine. I'd never written a book before. And I would go down to the bookstore and I'd buy a bunch of simple personal finance books on investing and I'd give them away to people. So literally, like the first time I went down, Sean, I bought 40 copies of John Bogle's Common Sense Guide to Investing, a little book of Common Sense Guide to Investing, a little red book. I bought 40 of them, little hard covers, and just sent out an email saying, come and get them, they're in my classroom. And people just gobbled them up like cookies in a staff room, like they were gone. Like, wow, there's an appetite for this. So a couple of days later, I went back down to the bookstore and I picked 12 titles that I thought were pretty simple. And I bought 40 books constituting 12 different titles. And I did the same thing. People bought them. People picked them up. I wasn't selling them. They were free. My wife's like, gosh, you're spending so much money. I'm like, I, I know, but I feel like I want to help these people. So then I got people together and I had the sort of a, like a book talk, book group thing. And I said, hey, if you picked up one of those books, come to my classroom and let's talk about them. And so... I asked people, hey, so what do you guys think? Do you understand them? Oh, yeah, we understand them. Okay, so now let me ask you guys some questions. Well, okay, I don't quite understand this part. <laughs> you know, that's when people really opened up and they were like, started to be honest with me. And I realized, wow, I've spent like thousands of dollars. Like I really did. I think it was like three grand because I was buying a hard copy. Like I was buying hard covers and I spent over three grand on these crazy things and they didn't really get it. And so I was talking to Ian McGugan, who's the editor of, uh, of Money Sense magazine. He's now with the Golden Mail. And I said, Ian, I'm an idiot. Uh, he goes, no, you're, you're not an idiot. Um, you just, you know, got an expensive education there. Why don't you write your own book? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And he says, Andrew, write your own book. 
and make it as clear as possible and use as your guide people who have never read a finance book before. Use them as your guide as you put this thing together. So give them chapter one, ask them, did they understand it? If they don't, you ask them to very specifically let you know what they don't understand and then go back to the drawing board and rewrite it. So that's how I built Millionaire Teacher step-by-step step, with about 30 people who had never read a finance book before. They weren't interested in finance. They were just people that were my friends or people that, you know, like me a little bit. Wow. Yeah. That's such a good idea. And it reads true to when you read it, that it's clear. Your 30 people, like you said, they weren't totally interested in the finance, but the book can be read by, I think, some of the, the highest CFAs out there probably could read the book and gain a lot from it because the the information is not beginner. It, like you said, it, it's the ceiling of you don't actually need more than that. So really appreciate your style of writing. I'm looking at the time here, so I want to be mindful. I got two questions for you left. My first question is, in your book, like the subtitle mentions wealth. We talk about wealth all the time, whether it's a wealth manager, building wealth, accumulating wealth. What does the word wealth mean to Andrew today? With all your journeys behind you, all these experiences have created a perception for you on what the word wealth means. What would that be? Health is wealth. Your relationships, your wealth as well. So those components are the most important. Financial wealth, um, that's, it's an entirely different thing, but it's not as important as your health, your relationships, your physical health relationships and emotional health. So to me, that's true wealth is, is your health, whether emotional or physical or a combination of both. Emotional, physical, emotional. You know, I had in the book, I had a, an equation for financial wealth. And I said, okay, let's get this out. Let's talk about an equation for financial wealth. And I said, someone could earn a million dollars a year and not be wealthy if they spend a million and one. That person's poor. I don't care what you say. That person's poor. So I met somebody who actually earned about $8 million a year and had done so for a really long time. And I guarantee had less money than, than you and me. And uh, that's weird, Right. I would call that person essentially in a weird way. I would say, if you can't survive without your paycheck, you can't survive for a number of months, you're in a bit of trouble. Like you need to have that kind of, some kind of financial safety net. So my definition of wealth and millionaire teacher was somebody who could earn two times the median income level of your given city without having to work. So this is so different everywhere too, because in Thailand, for example, you could be wealthy with far less money because wealth is so relative. If you're in a place like Cha'am, Thailand, I'm just going to guess that the average person in Cha'am might earn something like, you know, maybe $10,000 a year. And so my definition of wealth in that case was someone who could earn 20 grand a year from their investments and never have to work again. So if they could double the median household income of the region that they're living in without having to work, and they could do that in perpetuity, then based on my definition, that person was wealthy. Okay goes back to the, the financial independence and having that freedom. And too, Sean, I want to say that I don't think you necessarily need to be wealthy by that definition either. That's just how I defined financial wealth. But you can be perfectly happy without having that kind of money. You can be financially independent without having that kind of money. You can be really financially independent. So you don't have to necessarily have to be wealthy to be financially independent. That's just my definition of wealth, financial wealth. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And, and it's nice to actually have a definition financially what is wealth. And then we're going to talk about, because you kindly agreed to round two on your next coming book. So I guess there's like one and a half questions left. But my, my last real question that I have is, let's say, oh, sorry, first, do you have kids? No, we don't. No, okay. 
let's say that you're 95 years old and you're not in your Victoria, maybe you're in your Victoria condo, but you can be anywhere in the world. 95 years old, you have a balcony and you're looking at the journey, the story of your life. And you're writing one last letter, not a column, not a book, a letter to whomever you want this. In this case, not your kids, but somebody who's going to read this letter after you pass on. And in that letter, you were to write about what you learned about having a healthy relationship with money. What would be a key tenant in that letter? Mm, That's a good question, Sean. What did I learn about healthy relationships with money? I would say to look at when you part with your money and when you're spending it, spend it on things that will enhance your lifestyle. The things that will enhance your lifestyle won't be material things. They'll be experiences. It'll be something that you'll learn through a trip. It'll be maybe guitar lessons, something that you'll be learning with specifically with someone that you love and respect. That's how to enhance your life with money. It's not to buy crap. Buying crap doesn't enhance your life with money. And note too that I'm not saying you have to be necessarily super frugal because I spend a lot of money these days on experiences and relatively always have. So it looks like, you know, if someone in their 20s looked at how much money I was spending on travel, they'd go, oh my God, he's a spendthrift. No, 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 no. I just prioritized what I knew would enhance my life with respect to the money I was spending. So I think it would probably relate to that. And then definitely living within your means and trying to maximize the money that you spend on appreciating assets and minimize the money you'd spend on depreciating assets. Yeah. Wow. I, that letter would be fantastic. And I like how you have the spend on things that are an enhance more of the feel good side, but also I do think it's great to have that spend on the appreciating. So more of the technical side. So I am younger than you. So I look forward to that letter when you write it in 95. uh, (laughs) How old are you, Sean? I'm 35. No, no. I'm 36 today. Today. Today, Yeah. Wow. What are we made it? 11th. 11th, Yeah. Your birthday is exactly one week after mine. Oh, wow. Well, happy belated. Yeah. Thanks. And happy birthday. Yeah. Thank you. I actually felt when we d- decided on May 11th, I'm like, I'm having Andrew Hallam on my birthday. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm 15 years older than you. 15, okay. 15 years and one week. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I guess I'll be quite old too when that letter comes, but I'll still read it. So Andrew, you have a new book coming out and we briefly touched on it before we started recording and you graciously agreed. And maybe I got to edit this out if the interview didn't go well, where you're going to rescind your offer, but you may come on and talk about book number two. Can you give us a preview of what book number two's themes are? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. So first of all, if anyone wants to read the first chapter, the first chapter is available on my website right now. And so the working title, and I'm calling it the working title because it won't be the title, but the working title is Millionaire Teacher's Guide to Living Well. And so at andrewhelm.com, you can download the first chapter of that. So you just sort of put in your information. And you'll also, as a result of doing that, you'll get that first download of the the first chapter, but you'll also get a, I'm doing this thing called a kindness lottery. And so what I'm doing is I'm taking people that have signed up for that first chapter. Anyone who's sort of signed up for that once a month, I'm going to draw a random name. And when I draw a random name, I'm going to ask them, let's say it's you like, okay, Sean, congratulations. You know, your name was just drawn. I have a copy here of Millionaire Teacher. I'm going to sign it and I'm going to write it out to someone you want me to write it out to. So it won't go to you, Sean, but it'll go to somebody you think it's going to help. And so 
you'll tell me a little bit about that person. I'll write something kind of fun and cheeky in there. Maybe do a little self-portrait, which is pretty simple for me because it, my self-portraits might look like that guy. It's pretty simple, right? Have a good laugh. And, uh, and I'll mail that book myself to that recipient you want me to. So it's kind of fun. I'll say, yeah, Sean thought you might like this book. So that's the, the sign up at andrewhelm.com. Now the book itself, you know, the genesis of it for me, Sean, was I was getting kind of tired of hearing people talk about success. And they would say, oh, Andrew, you're really successful because you're financially independent. And I think that's not, I might be successful, I might not be, but that's not why I'm successful. That should never be a component or the single component of success. Somebody would say, oh, yeah, that woman's super successful. She's got her own law firm. She's got that big house on the hill. And I would think, well, she might be successful, but not because of those things. Success is holistic. Success boils down to life satisfaction. And if you've got high life satisfaction, dude, you're a success. You're not a success if you have money, unless you've got high life satisfaction. And you cannot have high life satisfaction without having great relationships, pretty decent health, and a sense of purpose. And then, of course, enough money. So I talk about this in that book. So I'm pretty fired up about that. I could see your entire tone is just picked right up. And first off, Millionaire Teacher, I really, really enjoyed that book. I would advocate everyone goes and gets a copy if they haven't read that one yet. And I'm also really looking forward to this, uh, your new one. And I'll include all the links for your website and where we can download chapter number one. And I really look forward to that conversation on more details of what that book entails, because I think it's such a powerful message. And we see so much research that people have the financial means, but they don't know how to use it as that tool to use your word to enhance life. Yeah, I really look forward to hearing more on that on our next conversation and reading that book. Come So January pre-sales come out for the book? Pre-sales are in November. November. Yeah. Oh, right. In January, the book comes out. Yep. Okay. Well, Andrew, maybe before we go, where can people find you? We'll include this all in the show notes, your website, anything else you want to point towards? Yeah, I think just andrewhallam.com. And if anyone feels like connecting with me on LinkedIn, they can do that too. Okay. All right, Andrew, I really, really appreciate you taking the time today. And I look forward to round number two. My pleasure. Thanks, John, for the great conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Greatly appreciate it. And I also appreciate you for showing up, listening, and enjoying this content. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Have a great day.